Welcome to Hiawatha Church again, um, especially if it's your first or second time. We're really glad you're here. My name is Peter Carlson. I'm one of the overseers here uh, at Hiawatha, and um, we've been giving the pastors a little bit of a break from preaching. It's really especially nice during the month of December. They can have a little more time to be with their families, and uh, pastors generally have to work on Christmas, so it's kind of nice to give them a day off here and there before Christmas leading up to it, so we're happy to do that. And uh, special, special welcome if you're a podcast listener. We don't, we don't uh, acknowledge you podcast listeners very often, so thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Um, we are uh, in the middle of a sermon series right now in the book of Galatians. We have been for a while, and we're coming right up to the end. We're going to finish in the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to do a couple of uh, sermons that are focused on the idea of Christmas and Advent. Um, so look forward to that coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so far in this sermon series, if you've been here, uh, and even if you haven't, what we've talked about and seen a lot so far in the book of Galatians is this central issue that Paul is writing to these churches in the area of Galatia, which he helped plant and spent a lot of time there, and then he moved on and has been doing work other places. And he gets these reports back that some other people have shown up in these churches and have begun twisting this gospel of grace that he left them with and adding to it, specifically um, saying that they need to include some of these ritualistic acts of Orthodox Judaism in order to be a Christian. So it's not just about Jesus for these people. They say, that's good, but don't forget you also have to adhere to all these Old Testament laws and all these requirements and all these rituals. Specifically, circumcision is a really big one, um, but other things as well. And all of that just really undercuts what the reality is, the reality of saved by grace in Jesus alone, nothing else uh, is required. And when those things are in the church, it's really giving pride an opening, right? Because there are some people who probably said, okay, I'll get circumcised. And then they feel really awesome about the fact that they were willing to do that. And then the people who are like, that doesn't really sound right, are feeling kind of bad because maybe some of these high-level leaders in the church are falling for it. So Paul is, is writing on that occasion and really speaking out quite harshly against that kind of teaching and against the, those sort of things that are going on in these churches. So last week, Jesse preached uh, on this passage where Paul gave a list that's called the fruits of the Spirit. So maybe you're familiar with that or not, but it's a list of all these different um, virtues uh, that are fruits of the Christian life, things that will just grow naturally out of you as you continue to believe the gospel. And then he contrasted that with a list of like the works of the flesh and saying there's, there's these works of the flesh and then there's these fruits of the Spirit. And there's a, there's a duality there between the two. And we want to live by the Spirit. If we're a believer, we should be living by the Spirit, not by the flesh, forget those things, and continue to believe and start to bear this spiritual fruit. So after he finishes up with those two lists, he closes that passage from last week with this verse, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So it's kind of a warning that he leaves us with after talking about all these fruits of the Spirit. He says, okay, now I've given you this list of things that are going to come out of you as you bear fruit in the gospel, but I want you to remember not to become conceited and provoking one another and envying one another. And that's kind of going to set the stage for where we're going today in chapter 6 of Galatians. Because Paul's going to take this idea of fruits of the Spirit, but a warning against conceit and provocation and envy, and he's going to sort of breathe life into it for a church context. What does this look like in the life of a church? So I'm titling this sermon, The Law of Christ. 
and we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So if you have a, a Bible or a device or something, you can pull that up and we'll have it on the screen as well. We're going to start by reading the entire passage and then uh, we're going to go back and sort of unpack this a little bit. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So after all of what I just said, and then we read this passage, you might find it to be a little bit confusing. Because we've been saying it's not about keeping laws. And then here's this thing called the law of Christ. And it says we are supposed to keep that. Haven't we been saying that we're not, there's no law, we're free from law? What's the deal there? And then it says we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. But then like two verses later, it says, but remember, you have to bear your own load. So it's a little bit tangled and confusing. So I'm hoping that we can untangle that a little bit uh, and get at the heart of what Paul wants us to know and what God wants us to know through Paul about this passage. So let's start in verse 1. We'll put that up there again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So the first word here, brothers, should indicate to us that we're talking about a church context right here. When Paul uses the word brothers, he's saying, let's talk in in terms of the believers in the church. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. The things that I'm going to talk about are specifically addressed to believers in the church, these spiritual brothers and sisters. Those who have been adopted, right, into God's spiritual family through the blood of Christ. There's going to be applications Sure, for other contexts outside the church family, definitely. But as we read this section, I want you to just know that what we're talking about here is about issues that are primarily within the church context. And that's going to that's become a really important point a little bit later on as we continue uh, in this passage in just a minute here. So he's addressing brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. If anyone is caught in any transgression, and I think we've got to stop there for a second because... When you hear that phrase, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you could easily think that Paul is saying, aha, caught you sinning. I caught you. You've been caught. I got you. You're busted. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that this is about Christians going around to other Christians trying to catch them in the act of sinning. That's not what Paul is saying here. When he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, don't think about some sort of church dragnet where they're trying to catch people. Think about it like this person has been hooked by sin. A hook has been set in this person. They have been, become tangled. They're drowning, things like this. They're drowning in a pattern of sin. And you notice this as a fellow believer. Someone that you love is in danger. So it's not about I caught you. This is about sin has set a hook in you, and is pulling you in. That is the idea behind caught in any transgression. So don't don't let your brain go to the place of, I need to be on the lookout for people sinning because I want to catch them. It's about them being caught by sin. 
And again, we're not talking about non-believers here. So I, I really want to stress this point because I think this is extremely important, especially in 21st century Christianity. I want to stress this point that when he says someone is caught in some sin and we are going to go restore that person and seek, seek a restoration for them, he is specifically talking to Christians. He's not saying that Christians in the church need to be the world's morality police or the world's sin detectives. We're not supposed to do it in the church. We're not supposed to do it outside the church, especially not outside the church. If you've seen or heard that that's what Christians are supposed to do, they were supposed to catch sinful people doing sinful things in the world and then shame them to get them to stop doing it, that's not what the Bible says. Not at all. That is not what we are supposed to do. This is a passage talking about fellow Christians who have slipped into a pattern of sin, who've been caught by sin. It's telling us to pursue them and seek restoration for them, assuming that they are believers in the first place. So when a non-believer is in a pattern of sin and we notice it, Christians should pursue them, yes, but they are to lead them to Jesus first. We're supposed to address their spiritual problem first. And if our message to the world is allowed, stop sinning, all you people need to just stop sinning, what is wrong with you? Then we're presenting Christianity incorrectly. Because when we do that, we are making it sound to them like Christianity is about what we do. When we shout down sin out in the secular world outside the church, what they hear is, oh, so what they want me to do is be like them, which means not doing these things and then doing these things, and they're just going to keep shouting at me about that, but I just plain disagree. That's, that is out there in the world today. And they hear that becoming a Christian means stop sinning with whatever that definition of sin is in the church. So our message to non-believers in those contexts shouldn't be that. It should be, come and meet Jesus. Because if we want to see spiritual fruit from them, going back to that passage from last week about fruits of the Spirit over and against works of the flesh, if we want them to hear that and bear spiritual fruit, they need the Spirit of God in them first. If they don't have the Spirit of God in them, you can forget about fruits of the Spirit. That, That is not even possible until the seed of the gospel has been planted in them, and then that belief can germinate. So up until that point, our job is to bring them to Jesus, not to shout about all the sin that we see in their lives. Of course they have sin in their lives. Of course they have the works of the flesh in their lives, because they don't have the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So when Paul is talking here, and he's saying, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, he's talking about the church. For people outside the church, your non-believing friends, pursue them, especially if it's you know, self, self-harming sin, absolutely pursue them. Seek restoration for those kinds of things, but just know that you need to bring them to Jesus if you want to see this kind of restoration, this kind of spiritual fruit in their lives. I think that's extremely important, especially because we do see all over culture today, people who call themselves Christians, and maybe they are, and just have an unclear understanding of what this means, going out into the world and shouting to unbelievers about their sin and how they need to stop. They need to meet Jesus first. We're going to see that more in a second. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. You who are spiritual. Again, you could easily read this phrase, you who are spiritual, and hear in your brain, varsity Christians. You who are on the top 
of that pyramid in your church, you who are the top-tier leaders in your church, it's going to be your job to restore those people. But really, this phrase comes from this previous passage. Again, you who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit in you, the fruits of the Spirit are being born in your life. You're a believer, just plain and simple. If you are a believer, you're walking in the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. The fruit is being born in you. If you're a believer, bearing spiritual fruit by the power of Christ working in you first, then the responsibility to restore those drowning brothers and sisters falls on you. That is your responsibility. It's not just my responsibility or Spencer's or Chris, Pastor Chris, any of those people. It is all of your responsibility because you care about your brothers and sisters. You don't want to see them hooked by sin and pulled away. So it is your responsibility to restore them. And how do you do it? You do it in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. Jesus is a good resource to go to for a lot of things. And especially in this context, to depict what this looks like. What does it look like to restore someone and do it in a spirit of gentleness? So we're going to look just briefly at John chapter 8 for a really good real-life story of Jesus living this out and giving us a bit of a template for what this looks like for us. So I'm going to read this from John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So before I read the second half, just think of how the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, what are they embodying right now? What they are embodying right now is, I caught you. We were on the lookout, and we got one. We caught her in sin, in the very act of sin, actually. We didn't hear it secondhand. We actually, like, walked in on it, basically. We got her. We're really, we're really pleased about this for two reasons. We're pleased about this because it's kind of what we do. We, we see ourselves as the sin police of the world. It's kind of what we do. So we did it. We got her. And then second of all, ooh, this is a really good opportunity to use her to get to Jesus. Says, see what it says there? They said this to test him. So yeah, they want to prosecute her. Yeah, they want to, they want to catch her in sin and punish her. But they also see this as an opportunity to use her as a prop. They want to parade her in public before Jesus and use her as a prop to test him for their own purposes because they hate Jesus and they want to catch him. They want him to say, yeah, you're probably right. I guess we should stone her and I better be, in part, be a part of it. And then they can be like, yeah, you follow this guy? He stoned this woman in public. Or he'll say, no, let's not do it. And then they'll say, oh, you break the law of Moses. Perfect. So they think they've kind of got him here. But they're using this, this woman, a woman, real-life woman, and dragging her out in public, and if they caught her in the act, like, who knows what state she's in, physically what state she's in to bring her out in public, in the temple court, 
and parade her out. They suggest public execution right then and there. And, uh, oh, by the way, it says she was caught in the act of adultery, but I don't see another person there. So was it just her all by herself somehow committing adultery, or is there another person? There's, there's, a, there's a man, okay? Well, he's not there. Apparently, he's exempt from this kind of thing, which doesn't make any sense. The leaders clearly have a double standard uh, when it comes to this particular situation. And, and honestly, you know, as we all often see on the news, this is a double standard that's still around today. If it's an adultery, it's probably the woman's fault somehow, and she's going to be the one who bears this public shame. Okay, so what's, gonna, what's Jesus going to do? The Pharisees are waiting with bated breath, like, what's he going to do? We're going to catch him one way or the other. What's he going to do? Second half of the passage. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Not really the response they were anticipating, but okay. As they continued to ask him, like, hello, 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 are you, did you hear what he said? He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, again, Pharisees and scribes, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes in this situation is, We're all sinful. You are all sinful. No one is truly fit to judge the sin of others if they themselves are sinful. Do you agree? And being these intellectual men, they have to sort of think about it. Apparently the older ones are better at it. They're like, yeah, I guess I see that point. I guess I see that point. And so they leave. Oh, wait, except Jesus himself has never sinned. He is without sin. He is fully justified to be the first one to throw a stone. Correct? right? Jesus has never sinned. So when he says that to them, and they don't, they don't believe that, obviously, but this is, a, this is a point now about the sin that she, that she has committed, because is, that is the truth. She has sinned. Jesus himself is God incarnate. God is holy. God is sinless. Jesus has never sinned. God is the one who will judge humanity in the end. So Jesus is within his rights, theologically, to execute this woman right here. But Jesus is gentle. Essentially, what he does here is he forgives her sin right then, as she's standing before him, by saying that he doesn't condemn her. By saying that, these people haven't condemned you, I do not condemn you. He's basically saying, your sins are forgiven. I have the authority to do that. I have the authority to execute you right now or not do it and forgive you. And he chooses that. Now, Jesus does take her sin seriously because he does tell her, you're forgiven, but go and sin no more. The, the sin is real. He's not saying what you did was not sin, and that's why. No, he says it was sin, but now that I've forgiven you, I've empowered you to go and leave that life behind. So he takes that sin seriously, but he's gentle about it. He's gentle about it. He shows her that forgiveness is available. He could, how about this? He could have started out by saying, okay, woman, you must promise to leave your life of sin. And if you do and demonstrate that to me when we come back here in two weeks that you haven't done this again and prove it to me, then, then I will forgive you and then I will spare you and we won't stone you at that point. But until then, you're sort of on probation. 
No. He could have done that in front of everyone with the Pharisees and scribes there. But instead, no, no. He forgives the sin first and frees her from the lawful penalty for that sin. And then later on in his life, he himself suffers the death that was due to her at this very moment. He himself is subjected to public execution at the hands of these very same people who are calling for it for her. You see this this old painting, right, of Jesus in the middle here? These guys on the side, I like the guy who's got his finger like this. And they're they're arguing like she is supposed to die. And you see how he's got his hand out like this? And it's like he's stepping in between, putting himself in the middle of this, in front of her and in front of them and saying, actually, I'm forgiving her and that violent penalty is coming to me, not to her. That's, that's what I'm doing. It's beautiful. This kind of gentle forgiveness of sin, not asking something of her first, but forgiving her first and then saying, now that I have forgiven you, now that you have this knowledge and your spirit is being changed by me and by my words to you, you are empowered to go and sin no more and you will not suffer a public execution. Actually, that's me, not you. I will do that. It's, it's beautiful. This, this picture right here is beautiful, a beautiful idea of what a gentle restoration looks like within a church. Not about public shame, but about gentle forgiveness and an invitation to now bear that spiritual fruit because you have first been forgiven. So back to Galatians. Now, this passage is mostly focused not on those who are tangled up in sin, like this woman, but actually on those who are spiritual, like these Pharisees and scribes. Because Paul is talking to those types of people in the church. And so as such, he's got two warnings that he's going to give to these, to these types of people, but now in Galatia. Two, two warnings that he gives them. The first one, which you're going to see now, and the second later. The first one is, don't fall into the person's sin yourself. And then the second one later that we'll get to is don't get prideful about yourself that you're not as tangled up in sin as that person in your mind. So we'll get to that later. But first, he says at the end of this verse here, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So what he's saying is when working to restore someone, be careful not to fall into sin yourself. Now it could be the exact same sin that this brother or sister is tangled in. It could be that. It could be something like maybe you have a history of alcohol abuse in your past, but you're, you're done with it and you've moved on. But then someone in the church comes to you and says, I'm struggling with alcohol abuse and I heard maybe you would be one who, who could kind of mentor me and, and carry me along. And now you start having all these conversations with another person and they come and talk to you about all this binge drinking and all these different things. And then you start feeling tempted just by talking about it to go back to that life. That could be a real world scenario, right? Infidelity, whatever it is, as you're, as you're helping someone, you may be tempted to partake in that in some sense. So that's, that's true. That could happen, sure. But really, what Paul is going to talk about here is not the temptation to their sin, but it's about a temptation to pride. That's the warning that Paul is really giving here, this temptation to pride in that moment. So first, before we unpack what that is a little bit, there's this command that we, is kind of the central thesis of this passage. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as we've been talking in this series, if you've been around, we keep saying that the the law of the Old Testament has passed away. The law of the Old Testament is passing away 
And now Paul is saying there's something called the law of Christ, which is here, it's now. So what is the law of Christ? I'll tell you right now. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Now, the law is fulfilled, the new law of Christ is fulfilled by bearing one another's burdens. Again, especially within the church context. Loving someone else selflessly. So you can notice, though, it doesn't say keep the law of Christ. It doesn't use the word keep. It says fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ has already been perfectly kept, followed by Jesus himself. Not only did he keep all the Old Testament laws, because remember I said he never sinned, including all of the Old Testament laws. So he kept that law. But he went beyond that as well. At Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So he doesn't just keep all the laws perfectly, but he fulfills them and brings that finality of this requirement is now fulfilled to those Old Testament laws. So they're, they're complete. They're not just destroyed like they meant nothing. They're completed and finalized by what Jesus did. So we're not under that law anymore. It's been fulfilled and finalized and closed up and done because of Jesus. And now there's this new law. This is the law of Christ. And Jesus talks about it in, in, uh, in John, John 13. He says, a new, he's talking to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when he talks about this, it's not just lovey-dovey, love, 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 love people. He says, love just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another in the same manner. And what is the manner in which Christ loved his disciples and us? The cross. So the law of Christ is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and that is, bear one another's burdens because Jesus has borne our ultimate burden at the cross. That is the law of Christ. That is the context with which we are to bear one another's burdens. That is the context by which we are to fulfill this law. Like it says in the Christmas carol, right? His law, Jesus' law, is love. And his gospel is peace. And his law of love was kept and already fulfilled by Christ at the cross, and now he empowers us, his people, to fulfill the law through their love for each other and make it known. Not to keep it, he's kept it, he's done everything, but to fulfill it, to have a part in fulfilling this new law, this new covenant, this new promise. And again, specifically within the church context, because he says to his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as we are loving within the church, that is how it spills out. That is what people latch onto and understand and see. So, bearing one another's burdens is to share your life with other believers. And when we invest ourselves in a church community, when we put down roots in a church community, we put ourselves in a position where this can really happen on a real level. We can fulfill the law of Christ that's already been completely and perfectly kept for us by Christ. 
But then Paul's got this second warning. He says, okay, when I say something to people, they often take it the wrong way. So when I say something like keep a law, fulfill a law, when I make that statement to people, do you know what people often say? Ah, I can do that. I'm pretty good at that, actually. These kind of commands can lead to pride so easily, and Paul knows this. So when God asks us to fulfill the law of Christ, he offers us Jesus to slay our pride and say, well, Jesus did it. You are part of the fulfillment of it. But to change our hearts and empower us to do it, that is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But Paul feels the need, because it's real, to give us this warning in verses 3 through 5. For, so because of what I just said, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So this is where the passage really gets a little bit puzzling, because we've talked about like, bear one another's burdens, but make sure you bear your own load. Don't boast or put too much weight in your work, but make sure you test your work and you should only boast in yourself. So what in the, what in the world? It's, it's, it's a little bit confusing. So I want to make sure that we can untie this ling- linguistic knot a little bit and give it the proper context. So um, I think you can really boil this down into a simple statement that we can unpack a little bit as we, as we dissect this. And that statement is this. Comparison kills joy. Comparison kills joy. In the context of reaching out to help a fellow believer who is tangled in sin, don't give in to the temptation to look down on them for their fall and artificially elevate your own faith by doing that. We as humans love to use the failures of other people to polish up our own failures a little bit. Or even just forget them altogether, right? Just look at something as silly as celebrity gossip culture that's out there. I think that's mostly fed by that satisfaction that we get at seeing other people fail and then how that can boost our own perceptions of ourselves. You can be having a bad day and feel like things are going wrong and then you're checking out at the supermarket and you're like, who slept with who? Oh, terrible. Those people are terrible. I mean, they're successful millionaires and they're terrible. I'm so much better than them. I feel pretty good now. That, that's, that's real, right? Or, and I don't want to bash Facebook because I use it, but Facebook is constructed in such a way that it's pretty easy to take the incomplete picture of the lives that our friends or celebrities or whatever allow to be posted on Facebook and compare that to our own lives. I do it all the time. You can use that either to puff yourself up, like, why would they post that? That is dumb. Oh, I would never. Oh, I would never. They're, they are just a dumb person. I guess that's all there is to it. Or... You could tear yourself down. Their Christmas decorations are phenomenal. Ours are lame. We are bad people and they are good people. Why do I even look at this on my phone? Now I'm sad. That happens all the time, right? All the time. Either way, whether it's this positive comparison or this negative comparison, either way, that is dangerous. And that kind of thing kills our joy. And I think on some level, we all know this to be true. In Matthew 19... Jesus has this really interesting interaction that I want to use to illustrate this point. So in Matthew 19, a very rich man comes to Jesus, and he's got a question for him. Let's read this. Matthew 19. And behold, 
a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What do I have to do? Just give me the list. And Jesus says to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. It's a good response. And then Jesus does this, which is, which is a little interesting. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Seems odd because I thought we were all talking about how there's, the commandments are already done and finished and we don't need to worry about that. But Jesus knows something that we don't know. So see what happens here. And the rich man says to Jesus, well, which ones? Tell me which ones. And Jesus said, okay, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Which is a lie. It's a lie, right? He's like, I'm pretty perfect. I've already done all those things, and I feel like there's maybe one that is secret that you haven't told me yet, and if I do that one, then I'm good. So what else is there? So Jesus says this, okay? Jesus said to him, all right, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So we pause there for a second. So Jesus knows this man's sin, which is why he brings him to this point by talking about the law. He brings him to this point where he says, okay, if you want to follow me, you need to give up what you worship. And Jesus knows what this man worships is his wealth. And he says, you are worshiping your wealth and you don't care about worshiping me. And I will illustrate that point by saying, try giving up what you value most in your life, which is everything that you own because you have great possessions. And he says, you will have treasure in heaven which is Jesus himself, right? You will have me. You'll have everything you need. So give up that stuff. And the young man says, no thanks. I think I'm out. And that's when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you know what? Riches are a hard idol to kick. Riches are tough to get over. But God does save rich people. This is also where he says, um, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. But then Peter opens his mouth. You saw in that last verse, Peter says this in reply. Peter, always getting in trouble with what he says. Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will we have, Jesus? So Peter's essentially saying, hey, Jesus, remember how he left and he wasn't willing to like, give up all his stuff? Like, we did that. We did everything. We did all of that stuff. Well, you know, like, what are we going to have? Like, what's our treasure? We're pretty great compared to that guy, and he was rich, and we didn't have that much to begin with, but we even still left it. What about us? What about us? Ha ha, what is our treasure? <laughs> and Je Jesus says, you know, you're going to have treasure in heaven. Believe me, you have me. You have everything you need. Sure, fine. And then Jesus goes on from there, and he says, you know what? But many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. He's cautioning Peter, and he says, look, I'm generous to people. You have everything that you need. Are you seriously killing your own joy by comparing yourself to someone else when you have everything because you have me? And then he gives a parable where he talks about people getting hired to work in a field. And he's like, some people got hired at 8 o'clock in the morning and some people got hired at 4.30 and they quit at 5 and everybody got paid the same. You think they compared to each other? Yeah. You think some people grumbled and said, I worked 8 hours and they worked 30 minutes and we get paid the same? That is not fair. Yeah. You're the guy who's worked 8 hours. And if I want to pay everyone the same... 
It's not your problem because you all get infinity riches because you have me. So stop comparing yourself. And that's a word for us too. When you're doing this restoration with people around you, stop comparing yourself to them. Don't measure yourself against other Christians positively or negatively. Because in Ephesians, another book, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one can boast. For we are his work. We are God's work. God did the work, not us. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's the one who's doing all this, not you. So why are you getting caught up in comparisons? It's not about any of that stuff. Peter needs to have that message preached to him. Jesus could have said, and in his infinite wisdom, he didn't say something like this, but he could have said to Peter in that moment, it's not about what you've done. I granted you to leave and follow me. I did that. When I said, come and follow me when you were repairing your nets and you came, I made you do that. I empowered you to give up your life and follow me. I've given you everything already. So leave behind this toxic comparison. Get it out of your brain. Be thankful for what I've done for you. It's not about works. If it was, then you'd have basis for pride. You'd have basis for comparisons. Not unity, not joy, pride and comparison. Here's a quick flow chart to illustrate this. This is a common paradigm in our world today. First thing, humanity is burdened with physical troubles but is basically good. Good people see those physical burdens around them and they work to alleviate them and good works are pleasing to God because Jesus also helped burdened people. So, God grants salvation to the good people because of their good works. And then guess what happens? Those who did many and large good things like Peter are clearly better. And then the kingdom of God appears multi-tiered and pride and envy germinate. And at the bottom, what happens? People are glorified and they're set at odds with each other. Disunity. It is not joy-giving. It's joy-killing. Because they're at odds with each other. They're comparing with each other. That is a false gospel right there. But you see this everywhere in the world today, right? Well, I'm just doing a lot of good stuff and I'm being like Jesus and so God should like that, right? That is a false gospel right there. Here's the real gospel. Humanity is burdened with spiritual troubles, with sin, and so those cause physical troubles. And then what happens? Sinful people see their troubles and they try to fix them, but they can't. They can't do it. So God does something. God sends his son Jesus to die for the sinful people and bring redemption from sins. And then believing in Jesus grants salvation. And then believing leads to good works in the world, like bearing one another's burdens, physical and spiritual burdens. And then the law of Christ is displayed in the lives of believers. And then God is glorified and the church is unified. Because it's not about they did this versus they did this and who's doing more and who's doing less. And it's about God being glorified and the church is unified because he's the one who acted first and empowered all of this in the first place. So when we get this thing switched around, we open ourselves up to pride and envy and comparison and joylessness. Not good things. Not good things. Thinking that it's about doing something good does not bring goodness. It kills joy. We talked about the TV show Cheers, and I'm bringing Roseanne into the mix now. This is, some, this is from 
an episode of Roseanne that I've never seen. But the son is asking his mom, he's like, okay, what religion are we? And she says, uh, well, uh, we believe in uh, being good. So basically, we're good people. And then the husband's like, yeah, but we're not practicing. <laughs> he knows. He's like, well, I, I think our religion is just try to be good to people. Like, yeah, but we don't really do that, though. Right? That's the reality. You can say that it's about being a good person, but you better be prepared to know, like, well, I, but I'm terrible at that. And it doesn't bring you joy because you're going to see failings. You're going to see your own failings, other people's failings. You're going to get prideful because it's not about God, then it's about people. I just saw this week that there's a movie coming out based on the life of Mary Magdalene from the Gospels. She's a really cool woman. All these stories, she was a follower of Jesus. You maybe have heard of her from something called the Da Vinci Code, which is not at all true, but she got sort of famous from that as a character. And a movie about her, if it was done really well, could be pretty amazing, right? And maybe this movie's going to be good. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays Jesus. And he kind of, I saw the trailer, if you look it up, he sort of plays him like Charles Manson, so I don't know, maybe it's not going to be good. But I bring this up because I want you to hear, I want to put the synopsis from the Hollywood Reporter or whatever, the studio synopsis of what this story is going to be on the screen, because this is what people outside Christianity often see Christianity as, okay? So let me, let me just read this. Mary Magdalene movie synopsis. Set in the Holy Land in the first century CE, a young woman leaves her small fishing village and traditional family behind to join a radical new social movement. At its head is a charismatic leader, Jesus of Nazareth, who promises that the world is changing. And Mary is searching for a new way of living and an authenticity that is denied her by the rigid hierarchies of the day. As the notoriety of the group spreads and more are drawn to follow Jesus' inspirational message, Mary's spiritual journey places her at the heart of a story that will lead to the capital city of Jerusalem, where she must confront the reality of Jesus' destiny and her own place within it. Now, look at some of these things. What is, what is Christianity about? A radical new social movement. Uh, a charismatic leader who promises that the world is changing. It's about a new way of living. It's about authenticity. It's about challenging those rigid hierarchies of the day. It's about this inspirational message that someone was preaching. Boy, that, that sounds pretty hollow. It sounds pretty pedestrian. But that's the kind of thing that's out there. This is what Christianity is about. It's, it's about like social, social movement. It's about, it's about being really good. It's about being authentic. It's about this inspirational message. That's what it's all about. And when non-Christians see this kind of thing, and I, I believe this movie is mostly made by non-Christians, this idea, it bounces right off them. It leads them to just roll their eyes like, Christianity? I don't need a story to be a good person. I don't need fake rules from thousands of years ago to be a good person. I can do that all by myself. Even though John Goodman would say, yeah, but we're not practicing it. But when we're hammering, what we're hammering on in Galatians is that our good, our good works aren't what save us. This kind of stuff doesn't save us. This doesn't get people excited to be a Christian. It just sounds like, yeah, I mean, I can do a lot of that stuff in a, in a different organization. If it's just about some kind of sociological framework that helps people live good lives, that's the kind of thing that leads to pride and envy and comparison and joylessness. The law of Christ is believe in Christ and then embody the gospel. Or in the context of Galatians 6, 
Jesus bore our burdens. Therefore, bear one another's burdens and fulfill that law. Love each other because Jesus first loved us and now lives within us. Be humble towards each other because Jesus humbled himself first for us and now lives in us. And on and on and on. Jesus does this first, then empowers us to do it. Without Jesus, our attempts to do these kinds of things are hollow. Like the synopsis from that movie. Just, just about a social, sociological framework to, to be good to people, have a good society. That's a, that would be it. Without Jesus, our attempts to do these things, any attempts to do anything good without Jesus is hollow and worthless. And that might be a hard word for you to hear, but it's true and biblical that good things apart from Christ are not good things. We need Christ because without him, we have nothing, nothing to our name at all. And then Paul finishes up this passage with verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So Paul finishes this section with just a quick hit encouragement to the church, and it's this, take care of your leaders. In the midst of instructions to take care of those who are caught in sin and bring them to restoration, he reminds his people, also, take care of the ones who are teaching you the word in your church. So part of committing to a church, part of getting into this context where this stuff can happen on a real level, part of that, putting down roots, is supporting those who are teaching and leading the church. That's part of it. When you support your pastors, you're enabling the ministry of the kingdom of God. So take that seriously. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to hear this. Consider your financial giving to a church, this church or another church. Consider that an act of worship. Consider that a demonstration that the gospel is worth giving up some of yourself for. Remember that rich young man, right? He declined to give away his wealth to follow Jesus. The root of that is he didn't believe that Jesus would provide for him. He didn't believe that the treasure in heaven was better than the treasure he already had in his life here on earth. And he valued his own wealth more than he desired to obey Jesus. So when you give to a church, give as a way of worshiping and embodying this reality that God loves you and will sustain you no matter what. That is an act of worship because you are physically demonstrating to yourself and to God that you trust him to care for you in a very real and tangible way, but ultimately in the spiritual way that you've already been cared for at the cross where Jesus bought our redemption by his blood. So that's all I'm going to say on verse, on verse 6, but it is important. So as we close here, I've got a few things I want to just bring us back to. First thing I want you to know is that you should believe the gospel. Everything that I've said today, it all starts right from that seed of the gospel that Jesus Christ has already done everything that is required for your salvation and asks you to believe and become a part of that, to be adopted into his family, become a brother or sister in Christ. So for the first time or the millionth time, recommit yourself to this idea, the good news that Jesus has done everything for us. Just come to Jesus you don't have to be all cleaned up. Remember, this adulterous woman is there, just like literally was caught in the act of adultery, is standing there. She's not cleaned up yet. Just come to Jesus and come to Jesus however you are. Second thing, put down roots in the church. Right? Make church a place where everybody, or at least a few people, know your name. Make it a place where you're comfortable. Make it a place where you want to go. 
like that Cheers theme song we heard earlier. Don't you want to go where everybody knows your name? Isn't that a comfortable place to be? A place of rest? So support your church teachers and preachers. Give financially to the church ministry. That's part of putting down roots. When you're rooted in a church, you'll be able to be known by your brothers and sisters. And I mean truly known. This is a place where you'll get to know someone on a level that is very deep. And that's a good thing. Be known. And if you've been wounded by a church experience in the past, if you're here at Hiawatha and you're like, he's telling me to get involved. The last time I did that, the last time that I let people in, I got hurt real bad. And I don't really feel like I want to do that again anytime soon. I'm sorry that you experienced that. I really and truly am. Church leaders are never, ever perfect. No church is perfect. This church is not perfect. You can't, no one can promise that you'll never get hurt when you're at a church. But God is perfect. And his restoration is perfect and gentle and patient. And he wants to use a church to accomplish that in your life. He wants to. This is his mode of accomplishing these things in the life of his children. It's a church context. So whether it's Hiawatha Church or a different church that preaches biblically, believes the Bible, preaches the Bible, put down roots in a church. That is the avenue with which you will be experiencing all of these good things that we've talked about. When a brother or sister is tangled in sin, pursue them in gentleness as Christ pursued us. Or are you the one who's entangled? When, I'm, when I was talking about that before, did you think, like, actually, that's, that's more me on the, on the tangled side. Let someone into your life who will gently restore you as Christ restored us. Be known in a church so that that can happen in your life because God wants to use a church, again, to accomplish that in your life. And as you're in community, resist that tendency to measure your faith against the faith of others. Comparison like that will kill your joy. Resist that tendency. Remember, you can sink into self-loathing because you perceive yourself less than others, or you can puff yourself up in self-righteousness as you perceive yourself greater than others, and neither one of those things has any place in a church. Don't compare your faith to others. Just rejoice that we have a gentle, a loving, a restoring Savior, Jesus Christ, who has done the work in the first place, continues to do the work, and grants us to continue that work through fulfilling the law of Christ that's already been completely kept by Jesus himself. He invites us to rejoice and fulfill that law within a church, with each other, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoice in that. Let your joy overflow that Jesus has accomplished that and made that possible for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have done everything for us. That you have fulfilled the Old Testament law and rendered it complete. That there is no thing that we need to do from the Old Testament because you have done it all and that you invite us to fulfill something new, the law of Christ. That we can embody that in a church, that you have created the church to fulfill that purpose for you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. I pray that we would not be fearful to become part of a church, but that we would rejoice that there is a way that we can experience that restoration, that we can become part of a family, we can be rooted, we can have teachers over us. The church is where you accomplish these things, where you roll out the new law of Christ to your people. So I thank you for that truth. I pray that we would take that seriously and that we would grow closer to you as we grow closer to each other. I pray this in your name. Amen.